Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate Squatch player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average Squatch player is I've also made Squatch my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US Squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it, and if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out, so any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is part of the new wave of top American squash talent that is making a commitment to the professional squash tour. We sit down with Spencer Lovejoy, who is a recent graduate of Yale University, where he played number one all four years and earned the All-American distinction during his college career. Spencer knew early on during his junior squash career, he wanted to become a professional squash player. And now, just even a few months after graduation, he has already cracked the top 100 rankings of the best players on the planet. We touch on a variety of topics, from what inspired him to turn pro, and how he balanced a college experience while pushing his game to the next level. We also touch on mindset and how that can be the distinguishing factor and hurdle to reach the top of the game. As always, we cover a range of topics, but it's exciting to connect with another US player who is taking the brave step and making a go of the professional tour. He's part of a new wave of exciting players to watch and cheer for. Take a listen, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley. And calling in today, we have another one of our youngest guests ever, calling in from Connecticut, and that is Spencer Lovejoy. Welcome to the show. Hey, Connor. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are a recent graduate of Yale University. And for any of those other people out there who are following the show, you were just named by Dave Talbot as part of his top three players of all time that he would take on an all-star weekend. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, honestly, really honored to be named part of Dave's list. I mean, there's so many good players to choose from. And he's been coaching for 38 years, obviously a really long time. And being one of his most recent graduates too, Dave and I had a good relationship throughout my whole college career. And, you know, it was just a pleasure to play for him. And I gave, obviously, I gave my best throughout my whole four years and thought I played some pretty good squash. So I guess that was enough for him. <laughs> well, to give a little bit of context about you, you have just cracked the top 100 on the professional tour. 
You played number one at Yale all four years while you were there. And you guys were a top 10 program with the highest ranking of number five during the season. And this kind of puts you at the forefront of another debate about what's going on. And you might have been reading about this in the squash interwebs on the social media. But it's the intersection between college squash and professional squash. And I wonder, because at a young age, you told me that you made the commitment that you wanted to go professional. So why not go straight onto the tour and why go to college? What was your line of thinking there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, to be honest, yeah, we did speak earlier about my thought process kind of about going pro. And I really did know from a young age, even from 12, 13 years old, from the first time I kind of watched squash TV. I saw the pros out there on the glass court and that was just somewhere I really wanted to be. You know, I wanted to be doing that. And so from a young age, I did know that's something I wanted to try to do when I got older. And as I went through junior squash, kind of upped my game, became more of a reality that maybe I could really do that. And some people believed in me as well. So that really helped me kind of materialize the idea of going pro. But when I was making that college decision, there was part of me that kind of just wanted to scrap college and go pro, I have to say. Did you talk about that with anyone? I kind of just made this decision on my own. I know my parents wanted me to go to college, and I also thought it would be a good idea to go to college. (laughs) Squash is not everything in my life. I I have a lot of other attributes, I think, to give. And there was part of me that thought, maybe I'll just go play pro. But then the other side of me obviously thought, I can also get a world-class education at one of the top colleges in the country while playing squash. And I think I can handle doing both. So I think that's what eventually brought me to deciding, okay, I'm going to apply to a school, you know, I'm going to go play in college, and then I'm going to play pro after college, and during college so that I can kind of get a feel for how the pro tour is and have a good base to go off once I graduate. When I was kind of deciding between colleges too, I mean, obviously, everyone knows that the Ivy League is a they all have strong squash programs. And I was actually deciding between Yale and Trinity. Obviously, Yale, world-class. Trinity's still a good school, but maybe better in squash. And that was a big decision for me because it was, it was just hard for me because I also love Paul, Paul Asiante. He's an absolute legend and we get along very well. We see eye to eye on a lot of things. But you know, I also love Dave. Dave is a great guy, great coach, and he taught me so many things throughout my career. And obviously, I ended up making the decision to go to Yale, and I'm totally pleased with that decision. But you know, there were a lot of tough decisions to make along the way, I think is the point. But I'm happy with where I ended up and uh, happy with the situation I'm in now. So early on, you made the decision that it wasn't a question of if you would go professional squash route. It was just a matter of when. And so here you are, Now, you did have four years to kind of change your mind. And during those four years, did you waver at all about questioning whether you wanted to go on the pro tour after graduating? When I was in college, I actually didn't. I was 100% in on it. I mean, I took my squash very seriously in college. I kind of started out, I think, freshman year, partying a little too much, as a lot of kids (laughs) do. But then I kind of righted the ship and... I started focusing a lot on my goal of being a top professional. And I knew that I can't just piss away four years and then go pro after without putting in that hard work during the four years I'm at college, you know? So yeah, I mean, I put my head down. I started working really hard. And I definitely did miss out on some of the quote unquote, you know... College experience? Yeah, Yeah. because I was really focused on my goals. And I'd really enjoyed doing that because I saw myself improving 
throughout college, like I saw results coming. And that's something that really excites me is getting better and improving and seeing how all that hard work that you did paid off. Well, just to pause on that for a second. So what were some of the goals that you set? And how did you also then go about setting those goals? So let's start with first, what were the goals that you set? Well, so a couple of goals that I set going into college. Well, there were kind of my college squash goals and then my pro squash goals. I always thought in terms of pro squash, it would be great if I could get my ranking inside the top 120 by the time I graduated. So that was my kind of pro squash goal. And then my college squash goal was to win individuals, which never happened, but I got pretty close. My junior year, I made the semifinals and I was All-American my last three years. So I think I made some good progress. And then I did achieve my pro squash goal to make it to the top 120 because I think when I graduated, I was ranked 114 in the world. So that was great. And how did you go about setting those goals? I don't know. I just kind of sat down one day and I thought, I don't want to set any goals that are outlandish. I want to set realistic goals, things that I feel like I can achieve and that are stepping stones to what I want to achieve later in life playing squash. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're goal setting, it's definitely important to set the stepping stone goals. I mean, none of these goals were my final goals. They're just stepping stones to larger goals. And so, yeah, prioritizing kind of those micro goals and then building on those. So these were all kind of micro goals. I knew, I mean, I knew I was, you know, I'm young. I'm still very inexperienced. I have so much to learn. And if I can just do these small things and achieve these small things, it's going to build up and then it's going to lead to bigger goals that I really want. Do you have those written down? The big ones? Yeah. I can, yeah, I can share those with you if you want. Yeah, let's hear them. Yeah, so let me just pull them up here. They're on a Google Doc that I have. All right. After college, you know, after I graduated, I kind of sat down and I, I need to reevaluate where my goals were going to be. If I was going to go pro, what's kind of my roadmap? And I sat down with my coach, Lynn Leong, who's been my coach since I was nine years old. And she's very good at this kind of planning stuff. That's probably one of her biggest strengths, I think, is planning things out and organizing how we're going to achieve something. So yeah, I mean, I have kind of one year, three year, five year and 10 year goals down the line of what I want to achieve on the pro tour. So kind of my one year goal by 2022 would be get ranking inside the top 80, make the uh, US Pan Am and world team and win a 10K tournament. Three years, I want to be inside the top 40. I want to obtain the US number one ranking. And in five years, by 2026, I want to get that ranking inside the top 20. I want to maintain that US number one status. I'd love to win a gold medal at the Pan Am Games and lead Team USA at the World Championships. And then 10 years, uh, you know, I kind of, 10 years is a long time. So I wasn't 100% sure, but spitballing here reach the top 10 in the world rankings and uh, become world champion. I like it. Aiming high. <laughs> 10 years is a long time. So I didn't know. Obviously, things change over 10 years. And once you reach those other goals, you adjust your future goals. Say you reach year three and your goals, maybe you didn't achieve them or maybe they were things ended up a little differently than how you imagined they would. You got to change your next kind of step. So I think things always evolve, but I do like to set things that are challenging, you know, and obviously all of these goals are very challenging. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that if you're setting out on this journey, it seems like why not have those ambitions, right? 
And exactly. I had a question when you were writing those down and working with Lynn on that. I mean, how did that feel to sort of be putting pen to paper on that, so to speak? It definitely felt exciting, but also definitely a little bit scary to kind of like talk about the future because things are very uncertain, you know? And as much as you fantasize about becoming world champion, being top 10, playing on the glass court at TOC, all that stuff, it's like, you know, it's just talk until it actually happens. So I think it's definitely frightening to go out there and say, okay, this is what I want to do. But I think it's important and it really gets you thinking, how am I going to achieve that? In the journey of trying to accomplish those goals, you know, I think, like you said, that there are things that we need to improve in order to chip away at getting that. But what's an example of a small gap that you think you can close pretty quickly? And then what's a big gap that you think might take longer towards your journey? Yeah. So, I mean, after doing these big goals, I I kind of put together a lot of small goals, which are like really micro things that I need to work on in, in my actual physical game. And I think some big goal or some things that I could make a lot of ground on are kind of the mental side of the game and just the belief and the decision making on court. I think I have a lot of ground to make up on those. And then the smaller things that I keep chipping away on are kind of like, okay, getting physically stronger, improving small technical deficiencies and ball control. But I think those things are things I already do very well. But I think the things that the pros at the top of the game just do much better than everyone else is just knowing what to do in certain situations. The level of consistency. Right, exactly. Just being able to be stay focused for an entire match and and switch their strategy, be adaptable. All of these things, like they're obviously really tough to do and they take a lot of experience and repetition. But I think I can make up a lot of ground on those things. Those things are going to be the big difference makers in really improving. I want to go back a little bit because, again, it sounds like at an early age that you were inspired by the pro tour. Was there a moment that kind of happened? You're like, oh my gosh, I'm actually going to do that. Like, what was that moment that inspired you to go on the pro tour? Probably, I would say it was probably watching like the TOC in person in Grand Central. I was just like blown away by like this stage, this court. These pros, they're so close, like to the crowd and everything. Whereas in other sports, you don't get that same kind of personable feel of like the players. They're almost more like distant. Whereas like you're walking up that stadium at the TOC and the players are just on the side there. Like you can see them right there, you know? And just being up close to like these pros just made me really excited. Like I want to play on that court. I want to do this. So that was probably a big moment. And if you had to say, is there any player and or mix of players that is your ideal playing style? I've thought about this. It's an interesting question because I think when you're young, you watch the pro players and you kind of go out and you maybe try and emulate one player. You know, I pretend to be this player, play like this player. But I think recently I've kind of gotten away from that. And I think the best way is to play your own style of squash and not really try and pretend like you are like another player because you're not, you know? Sure. So what what would be a blend then of the inspiration that you take from? Hmm. Uh, I mean, Shabana was always my favorite player growing up. He was a lefty. I'm a righty, but you know, I just love the smoothness of his style. And yeah, he was always one of my favorite to watch. And I would say he was my favorite. He was my favorite for sure. 
Yeah, but it isn't really something I've thought about. You know, I've never really thought of being like kind of another player. I've always thought of taking, you know, bits and pieces maybe. That's what I mean. So right, right, right. It'd be like, I want Paul Cole's like fitness. I want Shabana's ability to hit Knicks. Yeah, I love Shabana's smoothness, his ability to hold the ball and always look like he's going to play the same shot when he could play any shot from that position. I love his style of swing that way. Rodriguez's quickness is always something that is enviable for sure. And my quickness is good, but to have his quickness would be great. And then probably Nick Matthews' tenacity Mm -hmm. is also something that's very admirable, I think, and a great quality to have. Are there any other athletes just in the sports realm that you draw inspiration from? Yeah, I would say Roger Federer is my favorite athlete of all time, for sure. I'm a massive Federer fan. And again, like it's just the way that he plays the game is just so different from everyone else. His smoothness around the court, his calmness in all situations. Yeah, I mean, the way he plays tennis is almost like art, Mm -hmm. art form. And it's just amazing to watch. You know, it's almost, I've never gotten the pleasure to watch him in person, but it's just pretty amazing, amazing to watch. His ability to find balance in any situation. And I think that's him both on court and off court. And what I found is actually there's interesting similarities between the personas or the personalities that we have that make us successful on court and then how that translates to off court kind of personalities. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think balance is a really important thing. And obviously, he is an embodiment of that. I think you're right. I think your persona does kind of come out when you play sport. And you can tell his lifestyle, he's very laid back off the court. He's not like some of the other players who are really calculated and kind of almost a little bit, obviously Nadal is the stark opposite, would be very stressful and effortful. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say you sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? I I think there's just a a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments. I've been to professional tournaments. And you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. I think you nailed it. Is there anything else you you might want to add? But I think you you nailed it. That is... (laughs) That's exactly what I think. Because <laughs> I'm in, like, with Hope. I've met Hope so many times and they've got into a little bit of conversation. But listening to that conversation you had with her, just, she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It, it's the fact that people can now relate to Hope as this person. Hopefully they're going to do that with me. I'm sure, because I'm quite a private person, I'm not, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people. But, When I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at junior tournaments and a lot of my juniors were top players in the country. But uh, yeah, I I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested 
or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com slash LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. So circling back to your college experience. So you're at Yale, your aspirations of going professional post-college. Was that challenging for you in terms of with your peers and other peer group? Just because the reason why I bring that up is there's a lot of uncertainty of what you're going to do post-college. And for you, if you had that certainty at an early age, it's just impressive. And so how did you balance kind of talking with your peers about all of you navigating your next step? Like I said before, I kind of had to make those sacrifices, which sometimes involved not going out with my friends, not going out till 2 a.m. and having a good time, which sometimes I regret because it looked like such a great time. But everyone on the team at Yale really respected my decision to do that. And they were all very supportive of it, which was great. It is tough sometimes because coming from an Ivy League school, you have the ability to go into a high paying job right out of college. And some people will naturally look at you and go, oh, well, why didn't you just do that? And that certainty from an early age, I'm confident in what I'm doing. I feel confident in my own decision. There's a simple answer to why I'm doing it. It's because I love it and I love doing it every day. And I'll figure out a way to make it profitable. But yeah, I mean, talking to certain people, it's tough. It's tough to say, okay, I, you know, I'm a pro squash player. Well, and they respond, oh, well, that doesn't pay very much money, does it? And I have to say, yeah, you're right. You know, it, it doesn't pay much money, but I really enjoy doing my work every day. I'm not sure many people right out of college can say that. And a fellow Team USA members, Chris Hansen's mom, uh, Janet, who we interviewed on Squash Radio, just had a really good perspective on this in terms of we often think about return on investment. So if you're going to Yale, what's going to be your return on investment from that period of time and that output of cash? But she introduced me to another way of calculating this, which I think I had thought about, but I just didn't actually have the lexicon for it, which was return on happiness. And so it sounds like at an early age is you already know what brings you happiness, what brings you joy. And I think that there's an element here of why haven't more Americans gone onto the tours? Exactly a lot of what you're wrestling with, but your determination and your passion is really what's fueling you. And yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting point and something I haven't fully thought about. But you asked me kind of, you know, did I have any doubts earlier? And the answer is once I graduated college and I was finally a real pro, which is what I wanted the whole time, I did start to have some doubts. Oh, interesting. And it was almost like, you know, now that I reached that thing that I kind of wanted to do, I started to doubt myself. But like you were also just saying, I do think that that determination and that love of the game has always trumped the doubt that I've had. It's always been there to kind of balance out the doubt and overpower the doubt. I'm just curious, is this sort of an internal monologue that's going on, internal dialogue, or is this something that you actually talk about with whether it's a support, like your coach or, or friends? Like, How do you overcome if doubt comes into your head? It is something uh, that I do a lot internally. I don't necessarily think I always have to talk to people about things. Sometimes I'm very content with just working it out on my own. But I do have a sports psychologist, uh, Mitch Green, who I talk to about certain things when I need to. But I'm smart enough to know that doubting is a normal thing for people to do. And sometimes I'll sit down a pad and paper and write it out and try and make sense of my own thoughts. But other times I'll just work it out on my own, you know? 
So speaking of which, one of the things that we've been talking about is around the subject of mindset. And that on the tour, one of the biggest things that we've already kind of identified is that the biggest thing that separates those who climb the ranks and those who continue to struggle through it is how they approach their mindset. So talk to me a little bit about how you and whether it's with your psychologist, that your sports psychologist you use, Mitch, how do you guys talk about this subject or even think about it? So I think mindset is a really unique thing because everyone's mind is different and you have to kind of find out what makes you tick and what you need to address personally. What do you need to address? Where are you weak? Where are you falling short from other great athletes? And a lot of it is very simple stuff, to be honest. It's not too complicated but it's hard to do in match situation. So for example, one thing I personally struggle with is self-doubt and something we already talked about, you know, I have some doubt in my abilities sometime or a fear of losing or fear of something, which is making me not believe that I can win or distracting me basically from the goal. So a lot of what I work on is just trying my best to stay in the moment during these matches, playing the ball, focusing on the physical sensations of playing, focusing on the goal, trying to keep the mind in the present and from wandering, those kinds of things. So, I mean, I think that's one side. But then the other side is making the right adjustments and the right decisions in the match situation, which is the split second things in squash. Obviously, the ball's moving a million miles an hour. You only have 0.5 seconds to decide whether you want to hit a boast or a drive or a drop and knowing what to do in that situation. And I think that's another thing that all the top players do really well is they're really decisive in their shot selection. That's where it kind of ties in is if I have that self-doubt, if I have that slight hesitation, I can't be quite as clear in my shot selection. I can't be quite as decisive. So trying to combine those two, having a clear mind on court and making the right decisions, that's one thing that all the top pros do really well. You don't often see guys in the top making a wrong shot selection. Obviously, it happens a couple times in a match, but... If you watch someone in the top 10 versus someone in the top 100, you're going to see the lower ranked guys are the ones who are making maybe slightly lower percentage decisions than the higher ranked players. I think this is at every level of the game when you're breaking through, right? You're going through the exact same iterations. Very easy for us to talk about right here. You know, it's like if I watch my match back on the video, oh, I should have hit this shot instead of that. Yeah. But even as you're describing that, like you climb the ranks of the US junior ranks and Anyone that was looking up to you, like, oh my God, Spencer is so good. They're doing the same stuff. Like, it's yeah, 100%. the consistencies. Minimal, you know, 0.01% better at that every time I get on court. That's what makes the difference now. Those kids are improving quickly at it, but I've reached a point where I'm pretty good at it, pretty darn good at it, but still not top 50, top 20 level good at making those decisions in a split second. Yeah, it'll come with time. And I love what you were saying. Where these things aren't complicated, oftentimes they're simple, but let's not conflate simple for easy, right? Exactly, exactly. And um, it's interesting on sort of the business side of these things, I actually think the responsibility of a lot of businesses is you have to go through the complexities. There's actually a lot of, and you and I were talking offline about sort of how the the sport runs and, and operates a different way. But then as we bring it to the consumer, it's you have to boil it down to simple parts. And so there's a point where you can go into the complexities, but what has to go out is simple. Yeah, 100%. I mean, squash is really, really a simple game tactically, but technically it's a game of very small details. And I think it's important to see the difference between that. But you know, when, we're, when you're in the match situation, you really want to simplify things as much as possible. I mean, when we're practicing, that's when we're focusing on 
those tiny, tiny details, you know, the angle of your racket, the speed, slight movement adjustments, trying to groove those as much as possible so that when we're playing, we don't have to think about those small details. We can just say, okay, stay on your toes, keep the ball straight, just small cues to remind yourself of your tactical focus to keep yourself focused for that duration of the match. You talked about one of the goals or sorry, the way that you approach your mindset of Encore is being in the moment. And you just mentioned cues. So what is it that you try and do in order to stay in the moment? Or what are the cues? Like if you're trying to coach me, what would you be imparting to me to do that? Yeah, well, I think everyone kind of has their own cues. Like I've heard of many different players doing things. Um, Do you know Clinton Liu? Mm -hmm. He'll write the score of the next point on the wall before he serves reminding himself, okay, focus on this current point or the next point I want to get. Adrian Grant told me that Nick Matthew, if you watch him for his return of serve, he kind of bends over and looks at one point on the front wall and he'll look at the same place throughout the entire tournament. So it's stuff like that. Like I have some phrases that I'll come back to, which are just tactical things maybe that I wanted to focus on that I defined from before I went on court. Maybe I wrote them down on a pad of paper and I go back to that. If I lose my way, you know, I use that as an anchor. So, you know, it could be simple things like stay on your toes, get the ball to the back wall, things that, that just bring me back to the present. And sometimes they're just physical things, really simple things like just feel the grip of the racket for a second. Just focus on that physical sensation of feeling your own grip, feel the ball in your hand. Because these are some things I think that we forget when our minds start to go all over the place. You got to find something to bring yourself back and remember that it's just about hitting that ball against the wall, you know? I completely agree. And I think those were really interesting, very specific. And also someone might be able to implement that the next time they go out on court. So I think that's very actionable. And it's it's very, uh, I would call it grounding in terms of trying to bring you back. And we can get very much in our own heads. We can be either maybe too much caught up in the moment of us playing this match that maybe winning it means it's gonna t- what's it going to do to our ranking. So you're getting almost, you're thinking too much past the moment versus actually just being here. A lot of people talk about that flow state, and I think we've all been lucky enough to feel that a few times at least. But when people describe that, it really is kind of like a feeling of everything just slows down and you're seeing everything so clearly. You're totally immersed in what you're doing. You don't care really about the score, about the opponent, about the court. You don't care about anything except that moment that you're in, which is like an amazing feeling. I mean, I wish I could be in that flow state more often. But I think a challenge is trying to find out what can get you into that state as much as possible. Because, I mean, it feels amazing, you know, like you feel like you're the king of the world when you're in that flow state. Have you ever had that experience of flow state outside of squash? I mean, not much, honestly. And I think that's one of the reasons that it kind of brings me back is that craving of feeling the most alive, being on the court, the court being where I can find that flow state the most. There's definitely other times I felt it, mostly like when I'm with my really good friends and we're just having like an amazing time or, you know, like nothing matters except what you're doing, like just having amazing banter or conversation is flowing really well. Like I've definitely felt that in that manner. But I think that's probably one of the only other times I could imagine feeling that type of sensation. I don't know what it is. But yeah, I've been driven to get better at certain things. And so I've been able to find it, whether it's at a young age, I I was frustrated about not being good at juggling. And so I taught myself how to juggle. Yeah, I worked with a sports psychologist at Yale, actually. Her name is Julia Elaine. And she was really into juggling and kind of using juggling as like a substitute for meditation. Because not everyone can just sit down and meditate. 
it's like an acquired taste. So I think, yeah, that was her way of getting people to like, just be in the moment was just start juggling. You have to be focused when you're juggling, otherwise you're going to drop the balls. So I use that as a warm up for some of my matches sometime. Can you juggle? Yeah, I can. I can do three balls. I'd love to learn how to do fourth, but it's really tough. So one thing with three, with three balls is what are the series of then tricks you can do with it or that? Right, right, right. So that's how I kind of expand it. Because once you get into like juggling, there's definitely, it is a very meditative state. And I think that that's why I call it meditative state versus meditation. I think that there's so many different angles of how you can do that. I've, I've talked about, I think breathing certain patterns is actually what I like. Again, gets me into a meditative state. So yeah. juggling is one. And so there are tricks you can go learn with three balls because four balls gets into, yeah, it's actually basically juggling. Two balls, with one hand almost, right? Yeah. And it's just not as much fun for me. There's something about the crossover that I enjoy. And you can do a four ball crossover, but learn the tricks first. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did like juggling with three against a wall. Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, that's a good one. There's one on a tennis channel that I've seen that's actually you're juggling against the floor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we did one where you're juggling three, but with your hands facing downward. That's what I mean. Yes. Actually, like this rather oh, than yeah, yeah, yeah. hands up, you know, so you have to be quicker. Like it's, it was really hard. Yeah. And it requires a high level of focus for sure. I like all those things. So, before we go on to the quick fire section, I'd like to quickly touch on actually recovery because I think that within all of the aspects of how to become a better athlete, hydration has been, we know a lot more about that. I think the variety of food out there that we can do to fuel our body or sustain our body, I think there's a lot of information. Workouts, certainly, gosh, there's just so many options out there. But I still feel as though recovery is this topic that comes with certain stigmas about it right? It feels weird to do nothing. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that there's some stigma and less knowledge that is publicly available about that. So with you, and again, you're only a couple months full time on the pro tour here. But how are you thinking about recovery as a way to propel your performance, not just hurt it? Like you said, I'm still new to this. And recovery has definitely been something I've not been good at in the past. So I'm really just still trying to find out what kind of works for me, you know, what makes me feel good. When I was younger, I was I was horrible. I never wanted to rest. I just wanted to keep going, going, going. And I definitely learned the hard way. Like I would injure myself. Like I would feel like crap because I was just playing too much and I was just exhausted. Recently, I've kind of noticed the real benefits of recovery. And I think it's partly a mental thing too, because for me at least, when I'm not doing things, I tend to default to thinking that I'm kind of losing ground on my competition because I'm not training, which is actually very logical and not the right way to think. I've identified because you have to, you really do have to rest and rest well if you're going to give 100% that you need on the court. So yeah, I started experimenting with this first in college because I got these two really bad injuries. Midway through my sophomore year, I tore my hip flexor in my left side. And then that was about like a two month injury. That's a tough one. Yeah. And then straight after that, like as I was just recovering, I actually got appendicitis, which was kind of just dumb luck. But that put me out for like another month and a half. And after that, I was like, well, this kind of sucks. I don't want to be injured. I want to always be able to give my best. So I did start looking into a lot of things. I read some books, you know, I read Tom Brady's book, TB12 method, all that kind of gimmicky stuff, but also some good ideas in there. 
And I just started trying things, you know, I did gluten-free, I did dairy-free, you know, I read Djokovic's spiel on gluten-free, all that stuff. I did this stool analysis for like my diet, which basically like they tell you kind of like what food your body is reactive with. I bought a bunch of supplements, you know, all this stuff. And at one point I kind of just realized, okay, I tried all this stuff and it doesn't really seem to be making too much of a difference, to be honest. And I'm still obviously experimenting a lot with what kind of recovery I like the most, but I think I kind of determined I was overthinking a lot of it. And I thought that maybe there's some sort of magic bullet that will make you feel amazing. Switching to like a vegan diet or like switching some, this one thing will make you give you superhuman strength or something like that, you know? which is really not the case for anything. It's really just about finding what works. What I've recently determined at least is that a balanced lifestyle is what works best for me. And I push myself incredibly hard on the court, physically, mentally, everything. And when I come off the court, I don't want to have to feel like my recovery is a chore. I kind of just want to be able to do what I want. And that's how I release mentally, which means, you know, my diet is not quite as strict, to be honest. I like to indulge in sweets and other quote unquote unhealthy foods sometimes because it honestly just relaxes me and makes me feel good. But there are other things that, you know, I still get massage like once every two weeks, which is great. I really like that. And sleep is obviously a big importance too. just getting enough hours of sleep is huge. Something that is really, really simple that everyone overlooks. So yeah, that's kind of been my take on it the last couple of years. I mean, you brought up a lot of really good points there. And with the last one you just touched on with sleeping is, I think sleep is one of the disproportionate things that can help us with recovery. But it's also, it's hard to figure out how we sleep most effectually, right? I think caffeine can play a huge role in this. Alcohol, the type of sheets that we wear, the light. So people sometimes wear masks. But if any of your skin feels sunlight, it will tell your body to start waking up. So you actually need blackout curtains you want the temperature to be at different levels. So there's a lot of experimenting and science that goes into sleep. Something I've put thought into and also overthought many times. And something that is something for a squash player, someone who's always traveling and how to adapt to these different environments is... Oh my God, it's huge. It's very big. And if you can find that good balance, it's key. And I think squash players don't have kind of the same luxury as a lot of other sports people who can maybe afford higher end accommodations where they will have better, you know, sometimes we're in crappy motels. Sometimes we're staying with someone at their house in their kid's bedroom. You know, you don't always know where you're going to be staying. It's kind of like you have to be ready and you almost have to have an adaptive mindset where you know, okay, like the conditions might not be perfect, but I'm going to have to get over it. Because I think if you get stuck in that mindset where everything has to be this way, and then it doesn't turn out that way, you kind of freak out. And that's not good if you're on the road traveling to a tournament and your sleeping conditions are not ideal and you freak out, you got to get over it and you got to adapt. So one of the questions, do you use any wearables? I do not use wearables, actually. It's just something I don't really like doing. I try to be more self-aware of my own recovery. I want to be able to know when I feel good and when I don't feel good and know what to do to fix it. But I do think wearables have obviously whoop and all these companies have done really well to quantify all that stuff. But I want to be at a level where I can be self-aware enough to identify that stuff on my own rather than have someone tell it to me. So for me, the one exception to that is just heart rate. I think that that is, regardless of how self-aware you are, it's an indication for me of how you're doing on any day. Like if you're pushing yourself and you know that 
I can be in the 180 zone when I'm doing X. And it for me was also an early indication was, am I getting sick? Mm. Man, I respect that a lot for so many reasons. And I think it's more valuable towards those pursuing sport at a high level or anything at a high level. Yeah. For me, I've been using Fitbit and I just upgraded to the bigger screen. And it just gives me that being able to have it as a watch again is very interesting. I mean, another reason I don't use that stuff is because sometimes I find the data kind of stresses me out and I'd rather just not know sometimes. I actually totally respect that. And one thing it might be is as a suggestion is use it, but then let someone else track it for you and give you key insights. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good idea. Right. Because it's on a hundred percent. I actually took my Fitbit off for about a year or 18 months because I was suddenly getting information overload, but I wasn't using that information in a different way. And so a few years later, now I look at it and it's like, it's just an indicator and I, it's helpful because a lot of that isn't measurable in another way. And I do think your North Star of how am I feeling is the better question to be asking, but there's also involuntary data that your body's producing that it's nice to capture somehow. So I would suggest whether it's with your sports psychologist or another coach of just let them have access to it and give you key insights. Right. Yeah. I appreciate that for sure. So let's switch gears into the quick fire. Great. So the way that this breaks down is it's broken into two different sections. And one is about just going through some quick questions on squash side and then switching into some questions about trying to get to know you as a person. So the first section is going to be kind of like a 90 second drill. And I'm going to touch on different areas of the sport. And the way I'm going to phrase it this time is sometimes I've asked, what do you love about the sport or what do you want to see improved? And I'm going to ask you to pick either one that you're going to speak about it. Okay. Got it. So the first one is your career right now. It's the pro squash tour. So what do you either love about it or what do you want to see improved? Well, I love the traveling aspect of the pro tour and how it allows us to just access these new places that we've never been on a regular basis. I think that's just really cool and something that. I really enjoy. And then in terms of something that I would like to see improved, probably just the overall knowledge of the sport and the fact that I can't just go up to someone and say, I'm a pro squash player and they'll be like, oh, cool. Like, that's great. And then they'll have knowledge of that. You know, that's probably one of the most painful things is kind of walking into a party of 100 people and knowing that 90 of those people will have no idea what you're doing as your career. That's probably one of the things. I'm in the same boat with you, man, because I actually have to say in different cities, it matters. So it definitely varies. Yeah. Yeah. In Washington, D.C., I had to stop asking, like, do you know what squash is? Because then everyone looked at me versus in, in Chicago or parts of New York. It was much more still on the table. Yeah, 100%. What about college squash? College squash. Obviously, love the team aspect of college. I think that was one thing I enjoyed the most because obviously as squash players, we're individual athletes, but at the end of the day in college, you're playing for your team and you have all of your teammates constantly cheering you on. And that's something that you can never experience kind of in any other squash atmosphere. And then something I would improve about college squash. We talked a little bit about this. I don't know if it would still hold true with the end of season championships. Yeah, we talked about the layout of the season and I would love to see more happen during the preseason, kind of the first couple months of the year when things are pretty stagnant and kids are just kind of training for their first match, which is like mid-November. It would be great to have that time of the year be a little more exciting 
Yeah, for a long time, I thought that that would be interesting space to make that the doubles and the individual season. Yeah. Right, culminating in who would be the national champion for the individuals and the doubles. And then let Jan through Feb, March be about the team. Yeah, I think that that would be interesting and would definitely keep the kids a little more engaged for the first couple months instead of letting them uh, go out four nights a week. I hear you. The next question, I'm actually going to ask this slightly different to take advantage of your years and wisdom to get to where you are. And this is about junior squash. So imagine you're talking to a 13 or 15-year-old male or female. What would be the kind of parting wisdom you would say about their junior career? I would say have fun with it. Have fun playing. Really enjoy the sport. And don't prioritize the results as much when you're a junior because no one really remembers... I mean, if you want to go pro, no one is really going to remember that junior career in the same way that they'll remember what you do in the future. I think it's honestly always important to have fun with the game. Even when you become a pro, I'm still having fun out there every time I go play. So I think that and kind of going off that, just don't take yourself too seriously at the end of the day. And remember that it is a game and it is meant to be enjoyable. I like it. And if you were, let's say, I'm going to give a scenario that I'm a junior player, I'm out there, and you can just see basically I'm playing a match and it doesn't matter what position, yeah. but I'm just not having fun. What would be kind of your... Else. Say again? Say go do something else if you're not having fun out there, you know? Or figure out how you're going to play in a way that makes it fun for you. Obviously, I mean, some kids put a lot too much pressure on themselves to win. And I definitely put pressure on myself when I was younger in the juniors. But again, I always had that playful mentality as well of always just being overjoyed to be out there because I'm competitive. Obviously I'm competitive, you know, like I want to win, but I also am there because it's a great time. And the last question in this area. So desired future plans for the sport. And if you were trying to dream big, what would you want to see happen for the sport? I would love to be able to switch on my TV on like a Saturday night and see squash on ESPN. That's something that I think would be amazing. And just making the sport more accessible for everyone to see, more visible. Another thing I think that we talked about in our preliminary call was having more kind of stadiums out there where people can gather and watch squash that are more public spaces. Like you go to a Giants game, like you're going to go to a squash match on Saturday and there's going to be thousands of people there. You meet up with your group of friends, get some beers and watch squash for the night. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I do think that there's an opportunity for if we are thinking bigger and we're looking at kind of a five, 10 year horizon that in key markets, that arenas are being built specifically for broadcasting and displaying squash at the highest level and then let it operate as a club in the offset. But right now we build clubs and we try and rig it for special events. I'm generalizing here, but that's more of it. So it'd be interesting to have purpose built arenas. Yeah. Well, we're going to switch in to the other section of the quick fire, and we'll start off with a kind of an easy one. It's, do you have a favorite movie and or documentary? Hmm. My favorite documentary, probably uh, Strokes of Genius, which is about the 2008 Wimbledon final match between Federer and Nadal. It's actually free on YouTube. It's a great watch. I've watched it like four or five times probably, and it's just very inspirational. And I still consider that to be one of the best tennis matches ever played. And it's just so unique, their rivalry. I don't think it could ever be reproduced in any rivalry till the end of time, probably. So, yeah. I like it. Next question is, what is something that gets you fired up? 
And this can be either positive or negative emotions that it spews, or and it can be in squash world or outside of squash world. So what gets Spencer Lovejoy fired up? What gets me fired up? That's a tough question. I'm a pretty positive person. I don't get too antsy about too many things. So when I was in college, probably the things that fired me up the most were celebrating an achievement and knowing fully that you deserve that celebration. And it was something that it's one thing if you're going out with your friends on a Saturday for no reason, just because you don't have anything else to do versus going out with your friends on a Saturday after you just won the nationals or after you just achieved something, you know, and that's when I've felt my most highs after winning something or achieving something and then celebrating with the people I love the most. And that just creates the best environment for me. I like it. The next question is, and this can be something like an object or an activity, but what is it that gives you disproportionate happiness? And the quick caveat here that I got to give is we're going to take squash off the table. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take family and friends and pets because I think that's something that is something really is kind of like our meaning of life. So what is this maybe something obscure or that isn't as widely known of what brings you disproportionate happiness? Hmm. Probably being out on my boat during the summer. That's a good one. Taking the boat out and we'll bring out the water skis and all my cousins will be there. I mean, I guess sort of related to family, but different. No, no, it's an activity. And so it's a, a motorboat then? Yeah, we have a little Boston whaler here at Branford. It's a 17-footer and we'll just be out there for hours just towing. We have this little loop that we go around and we'll just bring everyone. You know, Either I'll drive or my dad will drive or my cousin will drive. And we'll just bring everyone on a loop. Everyone will get to do their little loop around a little water ski or tubing or whatever. And uh, yeah, so that really brings me a a lot of joy. I like that. Being out in the water for me is definitely something that brings me a lot of of happiness. And a lot of times I just take the boat myself and just anchor somewhere and just kind of chill. It's nice. Yeah, just, just soak up the good vibes, the sun. Well, in New England, we really have to take advantage of it while we can because it's not year round. Here's another tough one. Are you familiar with TED Talks? Uh, yeah, yeah. So here's a task. The scenario is going to be, you have to give a TED Talk, but it has to be something that you're not wildly known for, mm. right? And so this can be about something that people just don't know this about you and or something that you've always been curious about going to do that then you'd get the opportunity to go do it and then share your experience. So what would be your TED Talk? Yeah, that's another tough one for sure. It would probably be, I was a history major in college, so I learned about a lot of different cultures and things like that. And I do enjoy learning about these, you know, what people do, the different cultures, what makes different lifestyles. So I would probably want to travel to some sort of small village somewhere around the world and just kind of talk about what it was like there. What do these people do in this unknown place? Because I just think it's cool, you know, different people from different places grow up in different ways. I know the the sort of time machine question has always kind of fascinated me. If, if you could go back in time and is there a specific century that you might be curious about being able to witness firsthand? Not experience, but just witness. Yeah, I think maybe the start of the 20th century would be interesting just to see the technologies of that time and how things really started to change kind of at the end of the 18th century, the industrial revolution, all of that. And that was kind of the beginning of, of our new age of technology. And it would also be nice to just see how 
simple lives were back then. I feel like things have just become very, very different and complicated nowadays and be kind of cool. I agree. I think just even in that example you just gave, like it'd be interesting to see sort of cities firsthand when they were converting from horses to then having cars and that was kind of that. But we're actually going to experience that in our own lifetime. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Well, from a self-driving car perspective, there'd be a period of time they were saying, wait, in the 20th century, you drove yourself? Yeah, I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to go back to a time where things were so inconvenient where like you had to take your horse and buggy. But that's why I think the beginning of the 20th century would be cool because cars did exist, but they were just very simplistic. Everything was evolving, but it was very still very simplistic. And I think it would just be cool to experience that type of a lifestyle. I like it. So the last question we'll go out with is, are there any books and or, because this is a podcast, any podcasts you like to recommend? So books and or podcasts that you like. Yeah, I'm actually reading this book right now. I'll show you. I'm, I'm a big tennis fan. It's called String Theory by David Wallace. I don't know if maybe you read it or not. I have not. So String Theory by David Foster Wallace. By David Foster Wallace. It's got a bunch of essays that he wrote about his experience with tennis and about what he's observed, kind of the game of tennis. And yeah, it's just, it's an interesting perspective on uh, the nuances of, of the game. And then podcasts. Yeah, I like to listen to Joe Rogan. We talked about that. I also listen to my buddy, Liam McClintock. He graduated from Yale a couple of years before me. And he started this company called FitMind, which is a mindfulness meditation kind of thing. And he's got the FitMind podcast. So I'll, I'll listen to his podcast every once in a while. I like it. I didn't know he'd do that. So I have to check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His company's doing well now, FitMind. And he's the real deal too. He went to Bali and Indonesia, all these places to really train and become really educated in the Buddhist way of thinking. So yeah, he's done well. He's done well for himself. So, Well, great. Well, that closes out this interview. But I want to say that you are the next wave of generation that's coming through for US players. And it's people like yourself and other college athletes and or other athletes who are going straight to the, the tour that are going to make the difference for the sport in the United States. So I applaud you and everyone else that's doing that. And to continue the expanding family of Team USA is always a joy for me. And so we can't wait to track your results as you go and track your journey. So we're all going to be excited to hear how it comes about. Yeah, thank you, man. I really appreciate everything you're doing at Squash Radio. I think that this is really helping to get the word out and really shine some light on the people we have in our community. And it's been really interesting for me to listen the last couple of weeks to the different episodes. And I've really enjoyed learning about a few people who I've never uh, known before. So yeah, great work and keep it up. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and... Well, until next time, be well and have fun.